0: Welcome to another episode of Trump Watch Sussex. We're here at the University of Sussex the day after the U.S. midterm elections, and I'm joined today by three of my colleagues, Professor Paul Taggart, who's a professor here in U.S. politics. Professor um, Steve Berman, who's a professor of history and politics. My colleague, Anne Marie Angelo, who is um, a um, lecturer here in history and American studies. And my name is Melissa Milewski, and I also um, teach U.S. history here. So the U.S. midterm elections happened yesterday, and there was some very kind of significant results. The big kind of takeaway from the election was that the Democrats reclaimed um, the House of Representatives, which the Republicans had had power of, but the Republicans managed to hold on to control um, in the Senate, and it looks like they will possibly kind of pick up a few additional seats as well. So what we're here today is kind of to think about this in broader context and to kind of think about what this means, the larger kind of repercussions of this election. So move beyond the day-to-day kind of coverage of it and think about its real kind of significance. So I wanted to kind of start today by thinking about how the Democrats managed to kind of retake the House in this election what was their strategy in this um in this election cycle
1: well i don't think there was a unified strategy there were some divisions um, some of the candidates who won some of the younger candidates some of the more fe- the female candidates were quite progressive in american terms they were quite left-wing in their approach following the bernie sanders kind of line others were much more moderate and i think it's probably too early to say at the moment which trend is more dominant but would, both of those trends will uh, have to be carried forward by the Democrats because the dilemma that they represent, whether to go further to the left or whether to a- aim for the midst, the, main, the mainstream, is something that will, they will have to consider for 2020 um, in their strategy and, and when they're deciding how to take on Donald Trump in the presidential election.
0: So anyone you want to add to that?
1: Well, I mean, in a sense, I think that what was fascinating was that
2: Trump hung over these midterms um, like a monster and, and dominated the whole the whole process. That's clearly what he wanted to do. And in a sense, the, the Democrats' response has to be how to respond to Trump. I mean, it yes. sounds obvious to say, but in terms of legislative agendas and so on, that seems to have kind of got lost a little bit. Yeah. I think, I mean, essentially, the Democratic dilemma is um, how to respond to a populist president, to respond to somebody proactively, and to respond in a way that's not going to simply uh, be on his terms. And in a sense, it looks to me like the, the, the midterms were fought pretty much on his terms. He set the agenda, he set the issues, um, and he put himself front and center with all those rallies and so on. The uh, democratic response is a response to Trump. And I think that they've got to get an identity, and, and a, a policy identity as well, that's going to differentiate themselves from him in the future.
1: Well, I think they tried, some of them at least tried, by focusing on issues like Obamacare, or health care, we should say now. Which was the most prominent? Um, it was top of the list of people's concerns in most of the polls by far, and that's very unusual because it's usually the economy that is top of people's concerns, and this time it was healthcare. And the a lot of the Democrats uh, gained. I, it, it looks as though they gained because of their focus on those kind of issues. They also seem to gain because they focused on young people, women, and ethnic minorities. That is their constituency, and the, the, it was those issues. The healthcare issue that concerns, I, th- I would suggest, those those groups in the population more than than others.
0: That's very interesting. So, what do we all think about the Republican kind of strategy in this election? Were they just kind of tagging kind of um, onto kind of Trump, or were they setting themselves apart? What were they kind of trying to do in this election?
1: To my mind, they had very little strategy as Republicans because they were following Trump. As Paul already said, he made himself the center of the election. By and large, the Republican Party in the Congress and in the country at large has fallen in behind him. Some of them are a bit more sycophantic than others, but nonetheless, and some have some resistance. But they they don't have a separate agenda anymore. And so he took 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 the lead, and they followed in almost every area, as far as I can see. In terms of substantive issues, I can't really think of what they were talking about that was different from anything Trump might say.
3: Yeah, I think we really saw Trump strengthening and solidifying his base um, in the course of this election and in some ways also narrowing it. There were many long-term Republicans, um, long-term Republican voters who turned against Trump in light of um, uh, some of the racist rhetoric and uh, especially around the recent um talk about the caravan that's coming up through Latin America. So I think um, in a lot of ways that appeals to a certain sector of the population that's strengthened in this election, but it's also narrowed and perhaps helped in some of the key House races where it was possible to turn things on a very close level.
0: Perhaps particularly in the suburbs, it seemed like some of the talk about the caravan was not necessarily helping um, Republicans one thing that I did think was interesting in terms of Republican strategy was the way that many of them were supporting kind of some of the elements um, of Obamacare, um, including kind of um, not kind of having everyone still be able to kind of gain it even if they have pre-existing conditions. And so the and there was a few things like that did that did seem to be kind of not completely towing the line um, with Trump and with the general kind of Republican Party. Um, because I think that essentially they didn't think they'd be able to win um, if they did go against that.
2: It's clearly a party that's not at ease with Trump. And mm-hmm. I think there's a danger of seeing this as a, uh, as a referendum on the Republicans, but it's a referendum on Trump. And I think mm-hmm. that uh, you've seen, as uh, uh, Steve has already said, some very different positions. I mean, you know, the way that, the, that Trump was attacking Ryan and so on, there, there was outright opposition within parts of the Republican Party. There's quietly toeing the line, and then there's going gung ho yes. for him. I think there's real, real variation. But what we what we see is a Republican Party ill at ease uh, with with a uh, Republican president, and I think it's, you know, Trump is a very singular individual in that respect. But the, the one thing I'd say is, if we look if we look back over time, I mean, what do we expect to happen uh, in the first two years of a presidency? We expect to see, if we look back at, uh, at Bush and Obama, we see look back and see we expect the first midterms to be pretty bad, pretty pretty hellish, and I actually. Things were hellish for, for Trump, you know. I mean, uh, I know there are, there are reasons why he, why he did he did well in the Senate, but even even take that into account, he's he's uh, he's shown that he, he can campaign really well. And I mean, we, we kind of knew that, but he he campaigned more uh, and more vociferously than, than other presidents have done. And as you as uh, intimated, he's also targeted certain states. So we know he fights a fantastic campaign. The there are two things we know that are, one, he's created a polarized politics, hasn't he? And he's both a, he's both a, uh, a beneficiary of that polarised politics, but also a facilitator of that. And all this discussion of going for the base, he's created polarised po- uh, politics that means that, that that shapes the way that all politics is, is tending to occur But the other thing that occurs to me is that the, the other orthodoxy we have is that the first two years is a time you can get things done, <laughs> yeah. and Trump hasn't got things done. He's got things undone. He's got he got out of Paris, courts. He's got a, um, he's got, got out of the Iran deal. But he hasn't built a wall. And he hasn't done the big infrastructure projects because he needs money. He has done tax, tax, tax breaks. OK, I mean, that's because the Republicans have always wanted that. That's, in a sense, that's, that is a Republican success. But legislatively, it's amazing that the midterms, um, after somebody has not used their honeymoon period to push through an agenda, is absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And I know that Trump would say, well, actually, I've been, I've been wonderful and everything's great. And the, I've done the economy. But we know the economy was growing anyway. So he, his great position is to be in the right place at the right time. But it's amazing that he hasn't been more punished for the lack of this pers- agenda.
1: Perhaps perversely, but... In a sense, that the fact that the Democrats have taken over the House now gives him an opportunity because, as you say, he hasn't done get much done. He won't get very much done because they'll be able to stop him. And then he instead of saying, well, I didn't get much done because I'm not very good in a Republican Congress, I didn't get very much done because the Democrats stymied me. Yeah. And they're responsible for the gridlock. They're responsible for the polarisation. And that's the trap that the Democrats must try to avoid. They have mm-hmm. to pick their issues very carefully on what they're going to take him on with. And Obamacare, health care, I should keep saying, is, is yeah. one of those, I think, because that is popular, they do have the popular position, and they mustn't let him turn, be, turn, turn him around on that, but on some of the other issues, like the economy and infrastructure. He hasn't done much on infrastructure, for example. Mm-hmm. He will probably start saying now, I want to do something on infrastructure, and they, the House Democrats won't let him if they oppose him on everything, and so somehow they'll be responsible for the crumbling roads and the, the bridges and so on. And that's how politics is played, is to ha- how you can get the public to blame. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that they've taken over doesn't necessarily improve their position in in relation to the, the campaign for 2020, should should say.
2: Yeah, you particularly see that as a pop- with populist politicians like mm. Berlusconi being in power, saying, I'm still the victim, I'm still mm. being, mm. Uh, being uh, um, followed by by the, the communists and the, the judiciary yes. all against me. So portraying yourself as a victim is not normally seen as a presidential uh, mm. uh, playbook, but it is for populists.
3: I think it's important, too, to think about uh, how important it will be for the Democrats to... Um, show a unified front in terms of how they're presenting to the media what it is they are accomplishing. Because I think one of the things that Trump has done so effectively is control the rhetoric around what's been happening. And so people are effectively distracted from the lack of true accomplishment that's been going on and going forward, it will be really important for the Democrats to show what it is that they're trying to accomplish and make sure that that message is getting out to the base uh, in the run-up to 2020.
1: But that's one of the things... That You're right to say he has an accomplishment. But one thing he did was the tax cuts. And you can form your own views on whether that's an accomplishment or not. But what he has had benefiting him is a good economy. Now, we can argue as to whether that's a result of, of what Obama did. And he's coasting on that. But he did boost the economy with his tax cuts. And one of the big issues, of course, over the next two years the creating strategy is what happens to the economy. If the steam goes out of the economy, mm. that will lead to one set of politics. If it goes on booming for another two years and he keeps on boosting the economy, then it would be a different set of strategies. But either way, the, the Democrats have to position themselves so that he doesn't do exactly what Anne-Marie just said. He might do.
2: I but can, I, can I give a slightly counter argument,
1: which mm-hmm. is to say that I think one of the dangers is that
2: um, when you get a populist in power, that you, mm. you that they binarize politics and they make it, you know, for or against. And actually, the, the pluralism of politics, and the pluralism within the parties mm-hmm. is very important in American politics. And mm-hmm. I think the, the search for a great white knight for the Democrats is actually the, is, is, a, is a fool's errand. And mm-hmm. I, uh, well, in the mm-hmm. sense that, clearly, they're going to need to find someone they unify around. But that process of actually saying there are lots of different alternatives to Trump. It's not just um, we're anti-Trump, mm-hmm. we're pro, mm-hmm. I mean, and different positions. But I think that pluralism mm-hmm. is something that, that, that the Democrats need to celebrate and not simply be unified as an kind of anti-Trump force.
3: I would agree with that. I think I think it's a matter of making that message clear. And I don't know that the party necessarily in this election, we've seen a lot of hard fought local races. Um, and I don't know that we've necessarily seen a strong message coming forth about the pluralism that exists within the party right now.
0: Yeah, I think this has been a problem that the Democrats have had for quite a long time. And it's something that if they want to win in 2020, I think they need to kind of finally figure out. So. One of kind of the other kind of main takeaways from this race, I think, is just the astonishing kind of role of of women, um, of of women in color, and kind of um, of men of color um, in this election. And there's been all these kind of firsts um, here, kind of the. Uh, first kind of Native American um, women elected um, first Muslim women elected to kind of the House of Representatives a record-breaking kind of number of women um, in the House of Representatives what do what do all of us kind of make of of kind of this um, how how significant is this how large of a role um, did gender and kind of race play in this election
3: I think it played a a really significant role if we're thinking about the specific groups that Trump himself has targeted with some of his rhetoric and the fact that those groups turned out uh, in record numbers for a midterm election really suggests to us that there's momentum going forward. Um, And as we were just discussing, I think there's the potential for the Democratic Party to really capitalize on this idea of women in politics, of people in color in politics, um, and going forward, it remains to be seen if they'll, they'll take that forward and even consider some of the Senate races in 2020 as a target for this sort of change in the demographics of the House and what that means for the representation of the country as a whole. And really, you know, we can see this as a really sort of
0: strong counter message to Trump and everything he represents right now. I think it's absolutely true, and I think it's go- it's interesting just to see how much success many of this these women and kind of um, people of color had, and and perhaps that is kind of the path forward for the Democratic Party, perhaps even for the presidency in the in the twenty twenty elections. Seeing kind of how much how well um, it worked, and kind of how how powerful kind of the messages um, we heard from those candidates were. But
2: but isn't the power of, of Trump to actually? Um Mobilise those who uh, would be opposed to having a much more diverse agenda, or much more diverse in terms of gender and, uh, and race profile. So, a, a very diverse democratic party in the House doesn't that serve a little bit to, to reinforce the kind of dog whistle sort of politics on race that that people have often accused Trump of being Socio. associated with, as a, as a sort of a version of white nationalism in that sense. So, in a sense, he might he might might be quite happy to see that.
1: Mm. Well, the thing is that the, the insofar as his base is is white. Um, The fact is that the electorate is changing very rapidly and it moves every four years to become about two percent more non-white now if he's going to counter that demographic shift against him as it were because with more minority can more minority proportion of the population, he's not going to win that that side of the population, he's not going to win African-American votes, he's not going to win the majority of Hispanic votes. He hand, has then to energize his base pres- precisely because he has to get the turnout, and that requires him to be angry, as it were, to make them angry, to make them feel, and then attacking a more diverse democratic party becomes an obvious target p- p- because of political correctness and all the dog whistling that goes along with that. And that's what I think we can probably expect from him, I'm afraid.
2: And we've seen he's so good
1: at that. That's the point. Yeah. He's
2: fantastic yeah. at mobilizing that base. That's as a very good point, Steve. He shrin- the base is shrinking, but he's, mm-hmm. he's getting better and better at mobilizing. That's what. what what yesterday seemed to prove to me.
1: I think one of the other things that I would find interesting with the more diverse and more feminine female um, democratic parties, whether it changes the tone of politics somewhat. We've seen Nancy Pelosi already today talking about let's calm this down. Quite a number of the candidates are saying yes I I saw one of the candidates in Florida saying we're coming to get you Trump and another female candidate saying let's be civil let's be courteous let's do that sort of thing and I don't know whether that's a gender related thing Mm because you can see women taking both lines as men take both lines but I think there is this to to my mind there is this feeling in America that there is a malaise, that there is too much partisanship, that there is too much anger. It's not entirely shared across the population. Of course, Trump supporters don't think like that, but a lot of people do. And it's that middle ground. It's those people who think this has gone too far and we have to become more courteous and less partisan. And the critical group for that, as far as I can tell, and the ones who shifted more than anyone else is white suburban women who voted for Trump in extraordinary numbers in the 1916 and 2016 election. And they have shifted quite a lot. Because in a sense, African American voters don't shift; they vote Democrat. It's just how many of them turn out. Mm-hmm. But for white suburban women, it looks as though they're offended by the tone of politics, and they've shifted for that reason, at least in part. And if, he can, if the Democrats can capitalize on that again, then that's a path to uh, to victory. Actually, I think it's important to say.
0: Picking up on a few of those threads, kind of the anger that kind of Trump needs, I feel like with the Brett Kavanaugh kind of nominations, he was able to kind of really capitalize on that anger, and I think that that did bring out. Some voters, but I think it also did turn off a number of kind of women um, as well. And so I feel like that anger he needs it to kind of bring out his base, but it also can turn off kind of potential groups that that voted for him in the past as well.
1: Because the the Democrats won this election on the the overall vote by 7%. They have a 7% lead. Now, that should normally be a pretty solid base on which to go forward for two years. Unfortunately, the political system, the electoral system in America, is biased towards rural areas and areas where the Republicans dominate. And it's the Senate that mirrors the electoral college, as it were, and mirrors the outcome of the electoral results. So even if you're 7% ahead, if you're way, way ahead in California and pile up millions of Democrat plurality in California, it doesn't do you much good in Wisconsin or Ohio, which is where the election or Florida, where the election will be determined. And so the, the, it, on the face of it, the Democrats are in a strong position with a 7% lead. But actually, when you look at it, you factor in this uh, electoral system. He can, as he did last time, win without winning the, the majority vote. He doesn't need to actually win the popular vote in order to win the election. And we could have a 2020 result that mirrors the 2016 as a consequence.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, the one, th- one thing I'd like to pick up on is, is the issue of turnout. I mean, we've seen it looks at this stage of this incredibly high turnout for a midterm, mm-hmm. exceptional. And I think the danger we have a kind of a Rorschach test on this, which is we we will see in it what we want to see. Oh well, he's mobilised mm-hmm. the anti-Trump people are very angry therefore they've mobilised. Or if you're pro-Trump, look, he's really energised mm-hmm. people who've not voted before. But actually, what we know in terms of political science is that highly competitive elections with real choices increase turnout, mm-hmm. and that this is definitively what that was, wasn't it? This mm-hmm. was despite yeah. being a midterm, it really was a referendum, mm-hmm. and therefore it's behaved like much like a referendum, where everyone feels they have got to have their yeah, say. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I want to pick up on that a little bit, just to think about um, patterns of electoral turnout for African-Americans and things that are going to be really interesting in the lead up to 2020. So uh, the amendment that was um, made to the Florida uh, Constitution around uh, felon disenfranchisement and the fact that 1.4 million uh, Florida Florida voters have now regained their voting rights, Uh, the the majority of whom are African-American, right, could propose a potential sea change for Florida in 2020 um, in a very red state. Uh, the question remains, though, about the degree of voter suppression that uh, may have taken place in this election. Uh, there's a lot of question in Georgia around uh, Stacey Abrams' run for to be the first African-American woman governor of the US. Um, and uh, I think that we need to keep our eyes on that for Florida as well, um, because there's going to be this real change in terms of who the electorate is in Florida in the run up
1: to uh, 2020. Do, yeah. Just to add a bit of pecansy to that 40% of black African American males in Florida were disenfranchised by this uh, this thing that has now been repealed, the provision that has now been repealed. So the African African-American male voting population is increased by 40% as a Mm -hmm. result of what's happened in Mm -hmm. Florida. And that should have a dramatic effect because it's a a marginal state, as we all know, and it's a significant state for the Electoral College, and it should make a big difference. So I think Anne-Marie's point is very well taken on that.
3: Thanks. And I, I think part of it is about the degree to which the Democratic Party will pick up on African-American voters concerns and make them a concern throughout the process. We often see a lot of attention played to African-American voters in the run up to an election. um, And the degree to which those issues kind of carry through to 2020 will really probably affect how important it is uh, as a base in 2020.
1: Just as Trump has to mobilize his supporters, the Democrats have to mobilize the African-American vote because they will get it all virtually. Mm. And so if they get African-Americans to turn out because they're enthusiastic, that will make a big difference. It made a massive difference in 2016 because that's precisely what the Democrats failed to do.
0: So, what happens now? So, the the Democrats have regained control of the House. How much are they? How much kind of do we think they're actually going to be able to accomplish? President Trump is still in office. There's still kind of a conservative-dominated Supreme Court. Um, if anything. Um, the Republicans have a larger majority in the Senate. How much can can the House accomplish on its own?
2: Well, the one thing I'm, I'm skeptical about is the impeachment idea. Mm. That, that I'm, I'm very skeptical that, that this means the impeachment process would start in the House because we know that we've tried in the Senate. But actually even more fundamental reasons, it's quite hard to actually see what the what the particular items would be about impeachment. I think that that's a, mm. there's a danger we see that. But the point, I would come back to what I said earlier, which is I don't think that that much of a legislative agenda was necessary for Trump to, to succeed thus far. Therefore, they can frustrate him and they can investigate him more, and they've got more power. Um, but, but they've always been able to, to, to block him. He's not been able to build those coalitions across both both the houses, and that will continue. We've seen he's a great campaigner, but he doesn't he doesn't need to build those legislative coalitions. So I don't think the game fundamentally changes for him. The real question for me is the Republicans. The real question is, is the, the Republicans will they? Uh, if, they'd, if he got a real punishing and had lost, lost both chambers, then, then be, I think it's conceivable that Republicans would have said, oh, well, OK, because like we said earlier, quite, they're quite uneasy with him. Well, actually, he's not a vote winner for us. So now I need to differentiate myself. And I think the midterms would, yeah. would be the time to do that. But I'm not sure they've, they've, they've had that that message from him. They've got a message that, um, certainly, if I target you, I can get you back in again. So it's actually given the, the, the Republicans more an incentive to to, to, to stick behind
1: I think it is a blame game, effectively. The Democrats controlling the House doesn't make a great deal of difference in positive terms for them in pursue, pursuing an agenda because there are too many blockages in the system. On the other hand, they can prevent the Republicans and particularly the President doing quite a number of things, but that's a stalemate. And if it's a stalemate, the danger is who gets, the question is who gets blamed for the stalemate and the Democrats. The the easiest way for them to get blamed is to persecute the president, is to go after impeachment, is to be seen to pursuing a a personal agenda against him, because it's not just his base that will get alienated from that. It's a lot of of middle-of-the-road voters, let's move on, let's move on. Now, all of this is dependent on on what comes out of Mueller. If something really dramatic comes out of Mueller, that might change these calculations. But all other things being equal, the Democrats have to avoid being blamed, and they do that by by not being seen to persecute the president unreasonably.
0: And I know know that Nancy Pelosi earlier this week indeed said that kind of impeachment is not on the immediate agenda. And it seems it seems that that is kind of the tone perhaps that she's going to be setting. Mm -hmm. But it does seem I agree that if something something came out kind of with the Mueller investigations with kind of ethics or um, that. Perhaps that could change. And now that the Democrats do have kind of that majority control of the House, they could vote to impeach, even though that wouldn't technically remove Trump from office. It would be a statement, um, at least.
1: The other great issue, of course, is the economy. He's benefited a lot over the last couple of years, and we'll see what happens. Maybe it's an artificial boost that's happened now. It may be that the natural cycle would be for the economy to slow down in the next two years. And then it's, again, the question of who gets the blame for that. And so he might be able to say, well, it's the Democrats. They take over the House and the economy tanks, and therefore it's their responsibility. And so you need to reelect me or it could go into various different ways, but that's an unknown. We just don't know how the economy is going to go. It seems unlikely that it can carry on at the same rate of growth mm-hmm. that it has happened for the last two years. So that will be a real battleground. The
2: yeah, other thing that strikes me is, is that Trump hasn't actually faced a really serious foreign policy crisis yeah. in the way that we, we can't necessarily expect. But that, that coming out of, of a clear blue sky kind of something that, that would really challenge yes. him. Yes. He's been very effective at framing foreign policy you know, and doing what he can do yes. unilaterally without, yeah. without the Senate and the House. Um, but I mean, I think a, a really challenging foreign policy crisis for him might also be as significant as, as economic downturn or, or yes. Yeah, yes. economic
1: growth, if you like. In some ways, the question is whether he foments a, a real crisis because there are plenty of flashpoints around the world. And if he is in trouble domestically, he wouldn't be the first president or the first leader of a country to find a foreign crisis in order to increase, improve their um, popularity mm-hmm. ratings. And given the fact that I think he thinks his po- foreign policy is working that he's taking on all sorts of other powers he has no reason to think otherwise yet if if a crunch comes however we'll see whether he sort of doubles down escalates the crisis or whether he backs off so far, we haven't seen any sign that he's like, inclined to back off. Well, he's not wrong to say it's working, is right. in the
2: sense that, that it hasn't hasn't worked against him no. um, so far. I mean, so it, he's claiming credit for things that, well, that people don't tend to vote. Well, where he does
1: have some vulnerability, I think, is on trade. Because as the trade wars carry on, if they do, we're already seeing, I think, in the voting in Iowa, some of the farmers are turning against him because they're suffering from the trade war now. They, he's argued that, these, that farmers, people who suffer from the trade wars and from tariffs, particularly farmers, should be given subsidies. Well, now he can't do that without the support of the Democrats. But of course, that puts the Democrats on the spot. So, because what are they going to say? They're going to say, "Well, we'll vote against subsidies for farmers." That's not a very easy political position. That's how the game's played.
0: So, how do all these all these different kind of players play this in the next kind of two years? How how do you think kind of Trump plays this? Does he work with the? With the House, how do you think kind of Democrats um, might play this? Are they going to, I guess we're saying that they're not going to kind of do impeachment, but are they going to try to to work together with Republicans, get some significant legislation through? What do you think the strategies are going to be going forward?
3: I think for this new crop of Democrats in the House, uh, I think there's going to be a real effort to focus on some of the local issues that got Mm -hmm. them elected. Right. Because in order to kind of build on the gains that were made from this election, I think they'll already be thinking about 2020 and ways to solidify some of the things that have been promised. Keeping in mind, though, that I think there's a great potential, as we've seen with Congress for the past 10 years now, for significant gridlock, um, because I think the Republican led Senate is going to dig in its heels Um perhaps even more so, emboldened by this uh, election. So I don't know that it's going to be a period of rapid legislative change in in American politics.
1: I think it will be gridlock. I can't see any way that it won't be. So therefore, the Democrats must have to concentrate on building the constituency that they already have, which, as we've said, is women, ethnic minorities and so on, young people. And that, so they have to appeal then to the issue, focus on the issues that appeal to those people, back those groups, because they do have significant advantages with all those groups. Um, and the idea would be that you focus on that positively, fo- focus on those issues positively, rather than simply focusing on taking on Trump, which only enrages his base and gives him all the opportunities that he needs to demonise the politically correct parts of the society, as he would see it.
2: And the one certainty we have is that Trump is going to continue in the way in the vein that he has been and that gives a certainty that we'll be uncertain. We don't know what yeah. he's going to do. Be, he, uh, but I also think any idea of bipartisanship, I know you've heard kind of some noises about that. That's not instinctively where he wants to go mm. and it doesn't seem to work for him. So I think that we, kn- want, we know it's more of the same for this. But we also know the more the same means it's potential that he can actually be quite successful. But it's not impossible to conceive of, of Trump winning 2020. If he, if he mobilizes this base, mm-hmm. if he continues to uh, frame the agenda around him and uses use unilateral powers in terms of foreign policy in ways that aren't too damaging to him, he can get back
1: in. I mean, he's claimed that this was a triumph for him. That's clearly not simply true. But what the takeaway is that this election gives him no reason to change his strategy. Carry on mm-hmm. in the vein that he's already been carrying on. I think, quite genuinely, he can take that lesson from this, and that's what poses the dilemma for the Democrats.
0: Well, let's let's kind of follow up on kind of what we're what we've been talking about about the two thousand and twenty elections. What does this mean um, for 2020. I think we see a few a few kind of female candidates, um, Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, who are kind of coming out of this strengthened, um, possibly going to be running, um, most likely I think for presidents um, in 2020. What else kind of do we see kind of coming out of this that might have kind of implications for for the next um, the next round of elections?
1: I think that the, the dem- on the Democratic side, the, the, the set of candidates will be quite diverse. You have the women you just mentioned. You've got Kamala Harris as well as a woman of colour, who's also likely to run Elizabeth Warren, will be running probably. And then on the other side, well, you've got Joe Biden, p- perhaps, but you've also got Cory Brooker and others. So this is qu- going to be quite a diverse field. And I would have thought, given the importance of the, gen- the gender balance and the female vote, that the likelihood, to my mind, is that we will have a female candidate from the Democrat side.
0: I have to agree that I think that that seems to be kind of the way that kind of the Democratic Party um, is going forward, and yeah, I'm hopeful <laughs> as well. There's so, there's, <laughs> so, there's so there's so many kind of female candidates who are in the running. Um, it'll be interesting to see.
2: Well, we also know, don't we, that, that, that who, who will finally emerge is not necessarily a straight line from two two mm-hmm. years down the, down the road. You know, yes. and the, the, there's going to be diversity, but there's also going to be plurality. There's going to be yes. lots of different candidates. Yes. I remember that Trump in a way came came from
1: nowhere,
2: yeah. you know, quite quickly. You know, not the
1: end, but but we we wouldn't have predicted that two years yeah. or two years. Well, away. we wouldn't have predicted Obama, would we? You know, years ago, and we wouldn't predict Kamala Harris at the yeah. moment. But okay. I still feel she might could be one a similar sort of candidate who come from not very being a new Senate candidate, being a new senator, and so on. But actually, is a very formidable operator, and I think she might touch tick a lot of boxes for a lot of people. What time will tell. It's fun to speculate about those things, but it really <laughs> is speculation.
0: I do feel like at least it's not bad news for the Democrats for the 2020 election, that they were able to win some quite tight races, um, that they 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 did do quite well um, in governorships um, as well as kind of in the House. And the Senate was always a bit rigged against them with electoral maps. So it wasn't a completely resounding victory, but I think it gives some hope for Democrats in 2020 that they might retake the presidency.
1: Well, I, I was much taken by Stacey Adoram's comments today about the, her election, given the changing composition, not only in Georgia of the electorate ethnic composition, but of the state, that what she represents, even though she didn't win, she came very, very close, and she represents a bridge between yesterday and tomorrow. The direction of travel should be in favor of the Democrats, I think. Mm-hmm. But then we did say that in 2016 as well, and it didn't work. So we'll see.
0: So finally, I just wanted to kind of think about what this means for Trump and we've been talking about this kind of quite a bit um, throughout our discussion today but any kind of final thoughts on on kind of this, the meaning of this election um, for Trump. Trump has been kind of so incredibly kind of controversial for many Americans how, does this give us additional kind of clarity about kind of America in in the age of Trump?
2: Well I I think that I think we've agreed that it's, it's shown that he's, his, uh, his modes operandi work, he's a good campaigner, and that, that he can sustain himself as a political force. I think, in, in a real sense, the, the question is going to be what about after Trump? Whether it's, you know, whether it's two years down the line or six years down the line, the real question is how you reconstruct American politics after it's been polarized. Uh, and, and divided in the way it is, and also uh, America's position in the world is going to be quite difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, any any, multi, any uh, international agreement, people are going to say, "Well, you know, you, 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 we don't know that's not going to be taken apart for four years time." So, I think there's a real question of reconstructing, if you like, the kind of the core pieces of the settlement of, of how American mm-hmm. politics works after Trump gets in, even if that is you know two years or, or six mm-hmm. years down the line. Well,
1: to me, the question is. We've seen a pattern of increased polarization, increased, decreased civility in politics. The question was, is this a turning point? I don't think it is yet. I don't Mm -hmm. think. I think we've got more of the partisanship, more of the anger and the frustration to come. It may turn in 2020, and it probably will turn a bit later than that, whoever is elected. But I don't think this was a turning point towards a more civil and more harmonious America. It's still two disharmonious blocks fighting each other for the time being, I suspect, unfortunately.
3: Picking up on that, I guess one of my main concerns is actually about whether this will become, and I, I don't think that it will, but it, my hopefulness wants to think that this would become a bit of a, a referendum on the electoral system. Mm-hmm. So we've seen now a president who lost the popular vote and won the election. We've seen a lot of discussion of um, voter suppression in Georgia, but also in other places that are African-American majority districts throughout the country. Mm -hmm. We've seen the loss of some of the protections of the Voting Rights Act um, under Chief Justice John Roberts. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot that's shifting with regard to the demographics of the United States, Mm -hmm. but also um, with regard to the lack of protections that are being provided around voting rights right now. And I have big concerns about whether in 2020, when a new census is taken, how redistricting um, will happen in light of that. So I think even after 2020, there are questions sort of coming out of 2016 and 2018 that might hopefully be answered.
0: Well, thank you all very much for joining us um, today. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you as well for tuning in to Trump Watch Sussex. We'll be back again with another episode soon.